0: Let's take our scriptures this morning. Let's go to Matthew chapter eight. Let's go back home to Matthew, um, to where we belong. So thankful for David covering for me last week and serving you faithfully. Uh, it was a blessing to listen to that. I know many of you are away. Let me encourage you, if you were not here last Sunday morning, we're not able to worship with uh, the believers here uh, to get that either CD, which I, I would assume is on the back table, and it is, and, uh, or you can download that for free at our website, graceofthevalley.org. And uh, I would just encourage you, David had been meditating on that text for some time. He and I had been discussing that for some time, and I was so thankful that he had opportunity to share that with our church family. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is where that message came from. And uh, with unveiled faces, we behold the glory of Christ, and we are transformed from glory unto glory. I mean, it's an incredible picture there of what is happening for us as God's people in the new covenant in Christ. And so I just am so appreciative for Demo and his uh, faithful service of us as he teaches and uh, cares for us as a pastor here, a faithful friend and uh co-worker. Did I just say Demo? Demo is his nickname. Thank you for that. I thought I saw some eyes looking back at me like, I don't know what, is that a different language? That's not Greek. That's DEMO for David Morris. We interned together way back when, and uh, David's from a little tiny farm community. Don't get the wrong impression. That's a good thing. Um, He's from a little tiny farm community uh, in western Pennsylvania, and uh, so he was interning with me in Pittsburgh, and we were going out to do some things for students, and We were joking that he really lacked street credibility, and uh, he needed some street cred, so we wanted to work on a name for him. D-Money came to mind. Um, We ended up landing on D-Mo, so that's what we call him. He will respond to that if you call him that. He'll respond to you, probably with a smile on his face. So um, David, David, that's what I need to call him here. D-Mo, so thankful for him preaching i um, also thankful for you all, allowing us to be away and uh, get some time with my family in Florida. That was a blessing, and uh, my parents, my mom has been anticipating this trip, I think, for a couple of years, so uh, I didn't know if we lived up to that expectation, but it was wild. Uh, my sister and her kids were there, and the cousins were all having a great time, and it was Florida, so it was humid beyond belief and warm, and uh, we just had a sweet time with our family, and we're thankful for that. You know, family times for us, because we don't have the benefit that many of you have of living close to our immediate family, uh, it's kind of a two sides of one coin. Uh, we love those opportunities to get to be with them, but we don't live life together like many of you do with your families. And so a lot of our time is getting to know each other and getting kind of caught up from the last time we saw each other, which was almost three years in this case. And uh, it's also a very confirming time for us. Uh, Brene and I have never gone home and thought, I wish we could just stay here. We always go home and once we're home and have time with our families, think let's get back to where we belong to home for us. And uh, that was the case this year as well. We're just thankful to be back with our church family and uh, so thankful for the relationships that God has forged here. Um, Deep abiding relationships that are centered on Christ and thankful for the encouragement of being with our folks, but also happy to be back with you all. So thank you for that time away. We're grateful for it Uh, next week. uh, We're going to spend some time because of it being a launch Sunday. We're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning of next week, kind of doing a state of the church address. I'm not the president. This isn't a nation, but it's a fitting uh, cultural reference. So we're going to do a state of the church. I'm just going to look at where we are as a church, um, where we're going as a church, talk about this year past, the year in the future, what we're looking forward to as your shepherds and what we're praying that God would do here. And uh, God has already done so much, and we're grateful for that, and yet we look with anticipation to this next year. And I want to share some of that with you and be able to pray together for God's blessing on our ministry in specific areas. So that'll be next Sunday morning. We'll take some time to do that. This morning, though, we're going to turn our attention back to Matthew chapter 8. And hang on to your hats. I think you can see in your bulletin, we're going to cover 17 verses this morning. Uh, That should get us out of here around 4 p.m. So... um, If you've got something cooking, you just need to go ahead and leave now. Uh, We'll get the CD for you. No, I'm teasing. We're going to get through this. This is a different kind of study because it's a different portion of Scripture. And I trust that uh, you'll benefit just as richly and deeply from this time as the opportunity to spend more time with smaller sections of Scripture. This morning, we head down the mountain, right? We've been on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been up on the plateau. Jesus has been seated. The disciples have been around him. The crowds have... um, ported in close to him, and now we're heading down the mountain. Uh, We're leaving the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew's Gospel, we're moving on to a new theme. Um, Verse 1 of chapter 8 is kind of the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the, the final statement. And When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And that's just classic Matthew understatement. Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount. He calls for a kingdom that is according to his standard, as the perfect fulfillment of the law and of righteousness. And then he comes down from the mountain, and no doubt the people that marveled at his authority in verses 28 and 29 were collected in a great crowd that followed him around. And that was surely the testimony that we're going to see throughout the remainder of this gospel account. And in your reading of the other gospel accounts, you constantly see large crowds around Jesus. That wraps up the Sermon on the Mount and that launches us into verse two and launches us into another theme that Matthew wants to present to us this morning. Now, remember that Matthew is not writing this chronologically, and this is super important for you as a Bible student, because if you're a careful student, you might be referencing the other Gospels to help you understand what all is going on and to paint the fullest picture possible of these events. Matthew is not writing in a time order. In fact, we're going to look at three miracles today that confirm and validate the Messiah, Jesus. And of those three miracles, the first miracle and the third miracle actually happened before the second miracle happens in Matthew's order. And on top of that, the first and the third miracle actually happened before the Sermon on the Mount in the order of events from a time standpoint. So be aware, this is no error in your scriptures. This is no confusion on the part of Matthew. He didn't get his story wrong. He didn't get messed up on this one. And after the fact, think, man, I wish I had a better editor that could have helped my history. He's not writing chronologically. He has a purpose that is a thematic purpose. He's trying to paint a picture for us. And he's using these different accounts to present Jesus Christ as the Messiah King. Undeniably. And so he's used the authority of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in his teaching. And today we're turning our attention from authority in word to authority in action. And now we're going to see the confirming miracles, 10 of them through this whole section over the next several weeks, that confirm the authority of Jesus and actually its authority in action. And that's what we're titling this mini study through chapter eight and chapter nine. Now, the chronological order or the non-chronological order of Matthew does have some implications. First of all, the orders are out of event. Secondly, the the, uh, accounts, these events, are abbreviated. If you read these accounts elsewhere, if you have a parallel Bible, which is a great tool, um, you can get a parallel of the Gospels. um, That'll be a great resource to you that puts these passages against each other in the whole of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're doing that, you'll find much fuller accounts, especially in Mark and Luke, with these miracles. Matthew is abbreviated. There is a lot missing from Luke's account that we just won't see in Matthew's account. And you say, why is that? Well, Matthew's writing to get a point across. He's not writing strictly to present a history to us. So this is not exhaustive. Again, this is thematic. He's trying to hammer home a point, and I think you're going to see that. This morning in these first 17 verses of chapter 8. Okay, so let's take those tools and let's look then at Jesus and his authority in action. Let's read verses 2 down through verse 17. You can follow along as I read out loud. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. I will be clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed when he entered capernaum a centurion found uh, came forward to him appealing to him lord my servant is lying paralyzed at home suffering terribly and he said to him i will come and heal him but the centurion replied lord i'm not worthy to have you come under my roof but only say the word and my servant will be healed For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. It's an amazing statement from the Lord. Verse 11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by the demons and cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Okay? Three powerful, miraculous stories that lay out for us the authority of Jesus in action. We've seen it in word. We've heard it in word. And now we're going to see it displayed for us in this account in the very actions of Jesus. Now, we're going to divide this section up just with two simple categories. And I hope these help you understand where we're going this morning. First of all, we'll see three validating miracle stories. And we're just going to look at these accounts and make sure that we've got the information right about these stories. Three validating miracle stories. And then secondly, we're going to look at one validated miracle worker right three validating miracle stories and one validated miracle worker and it's no mystery who that one is right so let's begin by looking at each one of these miraculous stories that are presented for us here and we'll begin first with the leper who is healed we begin with the leper who is healed the first of these three validating miracle stories and it begins in verse number 2 here we find one who is leprous he is burdened with the disease of leprosy we're not totally sure if leprosy in the new testament sense is the same thing we know about today but in any case it was something that was so disturbing and so detrimental to the skin that it made someone ceremonially unclean within the jewish religious system this man suffered from leprosy now at our best guess leprosy is a nerve disease i don't know if you've ever thought about it or studied leprosy i've always thought as a kid that leprosy was something that like removed limbs from you they like fell off Uh, you just all of a sudden didn't have fingers and you didn't have a nose and things just fell off of you and who would ever want to have leprosy because then your body parts just start falling off right well it's actually worse because leprosy attacks your nervous system and in the extremities of your body you lose all sense of feeling And so there's no signal of pain. You don't have any warning signs for pain. And so a leprous person was in grave danger because they didn't have anything telling them that what they had done was actually damaging their body. So if you were leprous, you could easily cut off a part of your body and feel nothing. Lepers were known to die from bleeding because they had wounded themselves on their lower extremities, their feet, and never known that they had deep gashes in their feet. They would rub and not feel the friction caused by the rubbing to the point of fingers and ears and noses actually coming off. This was a tragic disease. It was one that left in this time period and still today in ours, in cultures where this is present. It left these individuals with no other alternative but being outcasts. Here comes a leper. To Jesus. Jesus will deal with lepers. Repeatedly throughout his ministry. Here comes an individual. Who is plagued by a disease. That makes him ceremonially unclean. He cannot come to the temple. He cannot bring sacrifices. And anybody who touches him. Is also ceremonially unclean. He is viewed by the Jewish culture. As cursed by God. You remember that in Numbers chapter 12. Verses 10 and 11. Miriam Moses' sister, remember Miriam? She was cursed by God. And the curse for her negligent attitude. The curse was leprosy. And therefore, the Jewish culture viewed anybody who was suffering with leprosy as being directly cursed by God. And here comes a leper. And there are crowds of people around Jesus. No doubt they scatter for fear of being defiled ceremonially. Jesus responds with an amazing compassion towards this individual. Now notice this leper's faith. Fascinating words that Matthew chooses because Matthew's not giving us all the details. Matthew's just making a point. And notice the point he makes with the words that the leper speaks to Jesus. In verse number 2, the leper kneels down before him in a posture of humility and he says this, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." Isn't that fascinating? This is the first of these validating miracle stories. And the point here is quite simple. Jesus. If you want to. You can heal me. It's up to your will. It's what you desire to do. The authority is there. The power is there. There's nothing lacking. Except we don't know yet whether you desire to heal me. And the the leper comes and humbly says if you want to heal me. You can heal me, and you will heal me. This is the leper's faith. Jesus possesses all the power and authority necessary to heal this individual, and he knew it. And yet he understood that God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of the will of God the Father, as obeyed by the Son here on his earthly ministry, was what was the determining factor for his healing. And notice Jesus' response. This is fascinating of itself. Culturally, we don't get what's, what's being recorded here, but no doubt Matthew's first century readers totally got this. Okay, If you're a Jewish reader and you hear leper, you instantly think grotesque, defiled, disgusting people that I need to keep as far away from me as possible. So it's shocking enough that a leper came. He addressed the Lord Jesus personally and noticed Jesus' response. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. I can almost hear the universal gasp of the multitude that were by Jesus. He touched a leper. Jesus, the one who claimed to be the very son of God, the one who claimed to be the king of the kingdom, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, the promised one, The seed of Abraham, the seed of David. He just touched a leper. He is unclean. But he's not unclean. He's not unclean because anything that Jesus touches is not defiling Jesus. But rather, it receives the blessing of the touch. Notice what takes place. And immediately, on the spot, the leprosy is gone. Matthew understates things, and I don't think we grasp the sense of what was taking place. Nerves were being fixed. Okay, If you have nerve damage and you live with nerve damage, you know the disturbing and discouraging report from the doctors when you come with a nerve problem. I have a friend who's a part of our church that has a floating nerve I don't know if you know what a floating nerve is. I'd never heard of this before I found out about this situation. In his ribs, he has a nerve that's just out there, rogue, runaway nerve, right? And at any point in time, with no warning whatsoever, that rogue nerve can just show up. And if it shows up, he's pretty much incapacitated. The doctors have nothing they can do. They can't find the nerve. They can't cut the nerve, which is horrible to even think about. They can't deaden the nerve. They can't do anything for that nerve. Jesus, right here, touches this individual. He wills that this one would be healed. Nerves are corrected and damage is changed. That's why it says he's cleansed. His skin is restored. All damage is reversed. Don't be mistaken. This is no medical explanation here. This is miraculous power simply to put on display the authority of Jesus in action as the Messiah. Now, notice the conclusion of this. Jesus commands silence. All right. Notice verse four. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. All right. For proof to them. Go and do what I'm telling you to do—that is—don't say anything. Just go and tell these individuals what has happened. Follow the order of the Old Testament commands of Moses. Now, there's a couple of questions that are raised here, and this is a familiar question, and that is, why did Jesus tell multiple people during his earthly ministry not to mention what happened? Do you remember this? Do you remember the um, the man who was demon possessed? Jesus heals him, and he says. Uh, Don't tell anyone. And and, and the account is uh, pretty humorous because it says like straightway he ran to his village and told everyone like, I mean, it's not just disobedience. This is like reckless disobedience. The Messiah heals you. He says, now, I don't want you to tell anyone what has taken place. And you say, okay, and then you turn around and you literally run to as many people as you can and you tell them. Now, why did Jesus tell these individuals not to mention what had taken place? Why did he tell this man who had suffered with leprosy, who had been an outcast, who was now brought back into society by a miraculous activity of the Messiah? Why did he tell him not to tell anyone? The answer is pretty simple, because Jesus was concerned, first and foremost, with the plan of the Father. And those who would receive this information about the miracles that were being done, we're not concerned with the plan of the father. In other words, the view of the kingdom that Jesus had in his earthly ministry was the one that is ultimately played out at the cross and in his resurrection and in his return to gather his people. But the Jewish culture, the Jewish religious culture, the Jewish scene altogether thought the Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Roman government. That's why they said, hail the king. That's why they said, Hosanna. That's why they threw down palm branches, and then within a week, they're screaming for his crucifixion. Jewish people did not understand what the Messiah was to be, and Jesus did not want to speed up the frenzy that would accompany his miraculous activity by those who did not understand the plan of the Father. Therefore, he wanted to keep as low of a profile on these miraculous activities as possible. He also commanded this individual to go and to show himself to the priest according to Moses. Now, this is curious because we're Bible students and we're wondering, hey, I thought Matthew 5, 17 and 20 said that Jesus came and is the fulfillment of the old law of the Mosaic law. I mean, why is Jesus telling somebody to go and carry out the Mosaic law? Well, notice the end of verse four for a proof to them. And I think that's critical for us to understand Jesus commands this individual to go to bring whatever is to be brought for cleansing ceremonially to go to the priest to explain to them what has happened, because in explaining to them that a miracle has taken place and that the very son of God is present. It would be a declaration to the priest and to the religious leaders at the temple that, in fact, the Messiah was at hand and the kingdom was near. So Jesus commands silence and Jesus commands obedience to the law. And on the silence part, this poor individual failed in disobedience. On the obedience to the law part, no doubt he did present Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, the one who would heal the sick, the one who would bring the end to disease. That's the first account. The second one is quite a bit longer because Matthew takes time to hammer home a specific aspect of this theme that we find in Matthew chapter 8. So the first one is this leper healed. The second one you find in verses 5 down through verse 13. And it's the paralyzed servant who is healed. All right. We move now into Capernaum, which is a little tiny city uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And we come to this little this little tiny place. Jesus would minister in and around Capernaum throughout his ministry He may have even lived there during his earthly ministry or slept there. Didn't have a home. As he entered Capernaum, verse 5 says, a centurion came forward appealing to him. Now, now this is is doubly uh, shocking to those who are reading this account for the first time in Matthew's record. Because, first of all, a leper came right into the presence of Jesus, but now, boldly, a centurion comes into the presence of Jesus, and this individual... Is a Gentile. He's a Gentile. And this is very important for Matthew's point. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He has the rights and authority to all that will be his in eternity. He has the rights and authority to bring salvation to those whom he wills. And notice here the account that we find of this Gentile soldier coming to Jesus. He says, Lord, in verse 6, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And and suffering terribly is really a painful expression. So they're paralyzed and in pain. This is the servant. We don't know anything about what caused this. We don't know if it's a disease. We don't know if it was an accident, if it was a fall. We just know that this individual cannot move his limbs or her limbs and cannot cease from pain. And Jesus responds in verse seven, I will come and heal him. And we think to ourselves, well, isn't Jesus unbelievable? He just instantly with compassion says, hey, I'll show up and I'll heal your servant. But the centurion is not satisfied with that answer. In fact, he sees that as actually a hurdle that he must overcome. And so he begins this humble argument with the Messiah. He says, you don't need to come. In fact, I'm not worthy for you to come. I'm just a Gentile. I'm just a Roman soldier. I'm not worthy to have you, son of God, under my roof. I understand authority. You have authority. Your word is God's word. Your actions are God's actions. Therefore, just say the word and the work will be done. Just say the word. This draws my mind back to Genesis chapter 1, where we know that the agent of creation is, Because of Colossians chapter one, the agent of creation is none other than Jesus himself, pre-incarnate son of God, who spoke the worlds into existence, who spoke all that is from nothing, who said with a word and ex nihilo out of nothing created everything. This Gentile soldier says, just say the word, Jesus, and I know my 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 servant will be healed. I know paralysis will be reversed. I know that pain will stop. Just say the word. And Jesus marvels at this. In verse 10, he's, he's, he's beside himself by what is on display in front of a gathering of predominantly Jewish people. And he says, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I haven't found faith like this anywhere within the nation. Within God's chosen covenant people with those who were to be waiting for the Messiah, who were to be expectantly setting their lives in order for the coming of the Promised One, there was never a sign of this kind of faith. This is a faith that comes from seeing Christ for who He is. This soldier understood authority. He understood what was at stake. And he saw Jesus as bearing the authority and power to speak healing into existence for his servant. Now, there's a careful theology note here I want to make just briefly, and that is in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, or maybe your translation says he was astonished. Those are not words that are used to describe God. Right. God is not astonished at anything. God is not marveling. At anything. Do you ever think about that? Right? God does not go, I can't believe what just happened. Ever. He's never been surprised. And yet here in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who set aside his divine rights... Philippians chapter 2, the one who emptied himself and humbled himself to become a man and to die a death, even the death on a cross. Here we see him marveling. He's amazed. This is the humanity of Christ on display. The perfect God-man marveled at this faith. A powerful picture. Because without a God-man to substitute for us, there is no righteousness that would appease the wrath of God. None. We make much of the divinity of Christ and rightly so the divine nature of Jesus. And yet he was a human being. He marveled. He was limited by his humanity. He willingly gave up the right to his limitless knowledge, his limitless understanding. To be a man and to die for us. Carson speaks to this analogy that the soldier uses here about authority. And he says this, this analogy, though not perfect, reveals an astonishing faith that recognizes that Jesus needed neither ritual, magic, nor any other help. His authority was God's authority. His word was effective because it was God's word. Jesus was God and is God. Therefore, the centurion came with astonishing faith and said, say the word and the servant will be healed. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. Now, Jesus responds with some shocking words to the Jewish hearers around him. He says in verse 10, truly, I tell you at the very end of verse 10, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. That's that's bad enough. Okay, he's standing with a whole bunch of people from Israel and he says nobody in Israel has had this kind of faith. That's seeker insensitive as it is but he goes on from that and he piles it on even thicker notice what he says next in verse 11 i tell you many will come from east and west and recline at the table a jewish picture of eating where they would actually lay back at the table that's why foot washing became so critical to their culture okay if you've wondered if you're laying at the table you want that guy's feet that are right next to you clean all right reclining at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we have the picture of a feast in the kingdom of heaven. Probably the marriage feast of the Lamb. And here are individuals reclining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, number, and verse number 12 says, While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? He's saying this. Gentiles are going to be in the kingdom and Jews are going to go to hell. Gentiles are going to be there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the blood sons of the kingdom. That is the bloodline of Abraham himself. Some of them will not be there. He doesn't just say they won't be reclining there. He says they'll be cast in the outer darkness where weeping wailing, gnashing of teeth will be their existence. Why? Why is this true? Why is Jesus saying it here? Why is Matthew recording it here? Because Matthew is concerned for us to understand, as Jesus was concerned with the hearers of his words, to understand that only those who come to the Son, that is Jesus himself, on his terms, with a bankrupt spirit, empty-handed, laying their lives down to follow this one, Jesus of Nazareth, the promised one, only those who believe that if He says the word, miracles take place, only those who see Him for who He is and fall down and worship Him and acknowledge who He is, turning from themselves, taking up their cross, and following Him will be in the kingdom. Powerful, powerful gospel preaching from our lord jesus himself this is an amazing statement from the lord and he concludes this section then with this roman centurion in verse 13 and to the centurion jesus said go let it be done for you as you have believed and the servant was healed at that very moment. Again, Matthew has a point. He's trying to take he's trying to take us to a spot in a theme. He's trying to take us to an understanding. He's trying to take us to doctrine. And the doctrine is Jesus is who he said he was. He is authoritative in his speech, that is the Sermon on the Mount, and he is authoritative in action. He can heal whom he wills to heal. Believe. Worship. Follow. Jesus is the Messiah. That's Matthew's point. Immediately at the very moment that Jesus spoke those words, that servant was no longer paralyzed. Can you imagine? All right, the, Maybe they had a family prayer meeting that morning. And uh, here's this Roman family. They're praying to Yahweh God. Asking for his blessing and mercy. As the centurion, the father of the house, is going to take a day off of work. And he's going to go to Capernaum. To see if he can come in contact with Jesus. And so there they are at home waiting for the centurion to come back. And without any explanation, all of a sudden, toes are wiggling, hands are moving, pain has stopped, paralysis has been ended, miracle has taken place. Three validating miracle stories. One, a leper was healed. Two, a paralytic. Is healed, And then thirdly, we find in verses 14 and 15, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And we take a personal turn in verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, probably there in Capernaum, he may have moved there. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose or she rose and began to serve him. Now. Right off the bat, something ought to jump off the page if you have any religious awareness about you. And that is that Peter had a mother-in-law. If you don't know, uh, there's a whole religious system built around not marrying as a priest or the pope or any religious leader who is giving oversight within the Roman Catholic Church. Peter was healed, or Peter was married, and he was married at a point in which he was following Christ. So, the very first pope that the Roman Catholic Church would hold up is Peter, and he's a married man. I just thought that was interesting. That always is interesting to me. Peter was, in fact, a married guy. That ought to come to bear eventually on some discussion with a practicing Roman Catholic in your existence, okay? All right, number two, fever in this case is not what your kid had last night or this past week, which many of your children had a fever. You stuck a thermometer in there and you thought, ah, this cold took a turn for the worse. This is something more serious. Now we've got a fever on our hands and we probably need to take our um, our attention to this. Sniffles and what we thought was a common cold, we need to take this more seriously. That's not the case here. Fever at this point. Was not addressed as a symptom. It was actually viewed as the disease. There was not an understanding that the body would heat up to fight against a disease. And so when someone had a fever. It was as if they were about to die. Because their body was on its last leg. It was doing everything it could to fight. And without common modern medical knowledge. The fever was in many cases fatal. So Jesus comes into Peter's mother-in-law's home. We have no idea how old this lady is, but she's on the bed and she is without the capability to get up and even do common house chores. And here Matthew cuts us down. He whittles this story down to just a couple sentences. Jesus walks in the house. He touches her hand. The fever leaves her. She gets up and she serves. Story's over. And we just breeze right past that. Jesus walked in the house, he touched her, he touched her and the fever is gone. Anything that was taking place within her body, whatever she was fighting, whatever was causing that fever to be there, is removed. And the symptom then, the fever, which would have been viewed as the disease, was finished. Not only that, she received all physical strength back to the point at which she could get up immediately and get after serving her house guest, which was none other than the Son of God. This is an unbelievable story, even though it is completely understated. The healing was so thorough and immediate that she was able to be busy in the very moments after Jesus touched her hand. Those are the three validating miracle stories. There's a leper who has nerve damage reversed, skin healed, he's cleansed. There is a paralytic who is suffering with pain and no movement who is instantly at the word of Christ. Healed. And there's Peter's mother-in-law who is on her deathbed with this fever. With a simple touch of his hand. She is restored to full health. Now we come to verse 16 and 17 and we find the second. And the final section for our study this morning. We find one validated miracle worker. Those were the three accounts. But here is the emphasis that those three accounts were to have on us. That evening, that same evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And healed all who were sick. Why? Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. You see, Matthew's point in these out of order stories, these abbreviated out of order stories, his point is to put on display the truthfulness of the authority that was perceived in the Sermon on the Mount in his spoken word is now being portrayed and lived out with his actions. And it is being accomplished to fulfill prophecy that was directly spoken about none other than the suffering servant, the promised Messiah of God. You see that quote from Isaiah that's referenced in verse 17, that quote comes from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. And we know Isaiah 53 because it is the glorious doctrine of the atonement, of substitution, of christ bearing for us the messiah bearing for sinners the guilt and punishment of their sin and so here we find one validated miracle worker we find jesus put on display as the very son of god the promised suffering servant the undeniable theme is that jesus has all authority and he speaks with authority and he acts with authority now just because i 'm ridiculously curious, and maybe you are too. You may wonder why the evening? Why did everybody come did they wait till they were done with work? Was that what it was? So they got home at five, they went ahead and had supper, and then they took their demon possessed uh, family member to see jesus what 's going on here it 's the evening because it 's probably the conclusion of the Sabbath all right so the Sabbath was wrapping up, therefore they could get out and they could move about they could without any restrictions from the law, they could go about and do menial task or the most important task and so at the evening time when the sun went down the day was concluded the next day had begun the sabbath was over they gathered the people that they knew that were sick that were demon possessed and they rushed to bring them to jesus jesus is indiscriminate he casts out demons and with a word he heals all who are sick can you imagine that night I mean, this is one of those nights where you said I was there. This is one of those moments that will forever stand out in your mind when you saw disease after disease, demon after demon cast out, healed, remedied. And you knew you were there if your eyes were opened and you saw this for what it was. You knew that it was fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had said, Jesus was taking illnesses and bearing diseases. He was the Messiah. Jesus was selfless in his healing ministry, which is the ultimate messianic character trait. Because ultimately Jesus would be selfless not just in his healing ministry, he would be selfless to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This is the validated miracle worker. Jesus authority and action was pointing forward to the cross that is wrapped up in this prophecy. We're looking forward to the cross. We're looking forward to the culmination of the kingdom when Jesus would remove all illness and all disease with this power that was put on display to to visualize for those that were in his presence that he was, in fact, who he said he was, that he was from the father, that he did stand as the beloved son with whom the father was well pleased. This was all pointing forward to the cross where his exaltation would take place in the death of. And in his resurrection. Now understand here. As throughout your scriptures. Sin is understood. As the underlying cause. For all sickness and disease. And so what Jesus heals. In momentary uh, sickness. And illness and disease. Those individuals still died. Because sin was the cause. And ultimately Isaiah 53. Communicates that in this microcosm. Of his powerful supernatural healing ministry he was putting on display the macro of his great messianic ministry which was to bear the very sin and guilt of all who would believe the messiah would remove illness and disease through the substitutionary atonement that was accomplished at the cross that would bring many sons to glory That is the place where the resurrected body will experience no illness. Where in the kingdom there will be no disease. Where for an eternity in the presence of Christ. Sin's effects, sin's presence, and sin's power will be wiped away. This is our Christ. He's validated here for us by the faithful witness of his disciple Matthew. Now that leaves us with a very pointed conclusion okay here's the reality we can't read this and we can't study this and then leave neutral you don't get to opt out of this say well that was that was great that was cool um let's get taco bell you don't get that option because we have just come in contact once again with the very Son of God, who is the only source of salvation. He's the only source of righteousness that appeases the wrath of God. He's the only source of covering, of atonement for sinners. It's Him, and He's the only one. And you can't come into His presence, you can't see His power, you can't see His miracles, you can't hear His sermons, and then just go away and say, I'm neutral. You either reject Him or you fall down and worship Him. That's it. Those are your only options. It's heaven or hell. It's eternity. This is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Matthew says Jesus is who He said He was. And we're left with only two responses. You don't have the opportunity. I will not invite you to respond this morning. You will respond. That is the and conclusion that we come to. And amazingly, the Jewish nation rejected him. Remember John chapter 1 verse 11. We studied this on Christmas Sunday morning. John chapter 1 verse 11. He came to his own and his own. They refused. They rejected him outright. Amazing. Because they were in the very presence of the validated miracle worker. And they rejected him. And this morning... But for the grace of God, so would we. So I ask this morning, will you worship Jesus? As the son of God, by faith, believing that he accomplished the full payment of God's wrath for your sin at the cross. Will you believe? Will you worship? Or will you reject? Will you gather with those who gathered around Pilate's court, right there around his porch, and screamed, crucify him. Unbeliever, this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, you're here, you don't know the Christ, you don't know Jesus, you have never come by faith to believe that he is your substitute. You have never had the forgiveness of the Father brought to you through the sacrifice of the Son. You have never known the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have never understood the power of the living Word of God preserved for us in the pages of Scripture. If this is you, Jesus is the suffering servant who will forgive you if you will believe this morning. That's the offer. And it's free. It's free. If you'll turn from your own way, if you'll come empty handed to the cross and you will believe and you will come to the tomb and see Jesus is risen, death has been conquered, life is available, he will give it. He will take your sins and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west. He will cover you with the blood of Christ. Believer. This is our king. This is our king. Let's bring this down where we live. Suffering believer. Burdened believer. Financially struggling believer. Health struggling believer. Trial heavy believer. This is our king. He's the all powerful one. Who speaks into existence all that is. He's the all powerful one. Who heals at a word. He will return. He is our hope. He will come and he will take us to be in eternity with him. And we will never experience the pains of sin's effect again. He's the conquering Lord. There's no need for anyone or anything else in this life besides him. Look to him by faith for the grace needed to live in obedience to him for the glory of his name. Here we are right in the most materialistic time of our culture. I mean, this is like the letdown period, right? Several toys have already broken. Um, You finally got the nerve to just come to grips with the fact that that sweater is never going to be worn. Bless her heart for buying it. You're not wearing it. You've come to the conclusion that really what happened during this time was you gained weight. Okay, the end is here is a materialistic conclusion. Here we are at this point at this time. And many of us battle with this on a daily basis. We battle with our desire to be a part of this world, to know this world's blessing, to know this world's favor, to know this world's enjoyment and peace and to have it all here now and to enjoy everything this world can give us and all the promises that we see made to us from the world. And and here's what's true for us this morning from Matthew, chapter eight. Jesus Christ is better than all of that. Don't settle for some cheap substitute when you serve the risen, powerful miracle worker. I trust that you'll respond with humility for the glory of God this morning.